And well, here we are eight days away from Christmas 2017 and uh, to prepare ourselves for the celebration of our Lord's incarnation. Let's read uh, the prologue to the Gospel of John, which is the first 18 verses. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world had been made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But all the exceptions did. As many as received him, every individual, to them he gave the right to become children of God, the beloved children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, not John the Baptist, but the Lord Jesus, we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth in its fullness were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the Father, at any time. The unique God, monogenes means unique, only one of its kind, not only begotten, who is, since the ascension, in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Uh, Christmas according to John, we've been looking at uh, the the four Gospels, really three of the four Gospels, and James will look at, a Christmas through the lens of Mark next week. But according to John, Jesus is not just another preacher or prophet. The preachers are a dime a dozen, man. Uh, and there have been a lot of prophets. There have been a lot of true prophets, and there's been a lot of false prophets. But Jesus is not just another preacher, another prophet. He is the incarnation of God in human form. He is the issue and the issuer of eternal life. That's Christmas according to John. Christmas according to Luke, two weeks ago, we looked at events, the evening of the birth of Christ, and we saw that in Jesus we have Emmanuel, we have God with us in human form. And then last Sunday we looked at Christmas according to Matthew, which records events about a year after the birth of Christ. They're not in a stable anymore, they're in a house, we don't have an infant, we have a baby, we're not in a manger anymore. And we saw that uh, Christmas, according to Matthew, is that the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world, 
I mean, Peg, we had Iraqi astronomers coming to worship him, 800 or 900 mile trip one way, and yet the religious Jewish leaders six miles away in Jerusalem weren't willing to go six miles to go check him out. They sent these uh, Gentiles. So God works in unusual ways. Now, one of the take-homes we wanted you to have is that when you read the Luke 2 passage about the shepherds and the, and the, and the manger and the stable, those are events of the actual night of the birth. That's actual Christmas sent a snapshot. Matthew 2, even though your Christmas cards may have the wise men and the, the shepherds in the same location, that never happened. Now those, you know, when you look at those Christmas cards, hey Dustin, those Christmas cards are not photographs. They're artist representations, okay? And in fact, uh, the, the wise men came about a year later, which is why a little bit of overkill. Herod says, let's kill all the babies two years and under, right? So we're going to look at John today. Jesus is not just another preacher or prophet. He's the incarnation of God. He's the incarnation of God, the issue and issuer of eternal life. But as is our custom, let's uh, pray for our teachability and then also for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters here eight days before Christmas 2017. And uh, Steve Skinner, if you would, uh, lead us in, in prayer in that direction, okay? Thanks, Steve. Uh, let me remind you, this is the third Sunday of the month, and during the third Sunday of the month, in second hour, we meet in elders groups. Uh, David Demerson had family commitments to celebrate Christmas today, so his group will meet in here, and we'll just see how many of our elders and, and folks are here this morning, and we'll just kind of uh, collect up, interact on the message, share some prayer requests, and, and pray go from there. But before we dive into John 1, 1 through 18, just to make sure that our capacity for abstract thought is fully warmed up, let me share some attempts at Christmas comedy. That's all I can give you. Attempts, right? Where did the sheep in Bethlehem get their hair cut? At the Baba shop. Because they say Ba, you know. What do monkeys sing at Christmas time? Jungle bells. Like mildly amusing is, is all we're shooting at here. What did the bald man say sadly when he got a comb for Christmas? I will never part with this. Why are you looking at my hairline? <laughs> what do you get when you cross an apple with a Christmas tree? Pineapple. What makes the noise that, okay, Ken Wanzer, is actually Ken and Carol are, uh, are doing nursery duty. So, uh, I was thinking of him as an ex-basketball coach. Uh, what makes this noise? Ho, ho, swoosh. Ho, ho, swoosh. Santa Claus when he hits a three-pointer. Ho, ho, swoosh. Yeah. Is the last one hold your applause? What's the best thing a little boy can give his parents at Christmas time? A list of all the presents he wants. Let's move rapidly uh, back to John chapter 1. We're going to talk about the context and the content of this exquisite, incredible uh, passage. If this doesn't, uh, if you don't fall in love with this passage, you haven't read it uh, enough. It's just incredible, incredible stuff. And we're going to emphasize it's stressing the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the visible member of the Holy Trinity, the God-man Savior. 
The context is the Gospel of John overall. And if you look at this schematic diagram of the Gospel of John, you have a, a prologue, an organized beginning that we're going to look at this morning. You've got an epilogue at the end. I love that a passage where you know, they catch, quote-unquote, 153 fish. Jesus catches them for them early. And everybody wants to tell you what the symbolism of the 153 is. And people who should know better will say from pulpits, that's how many nations will be in the U.N. when Jesus comes back for the final catch of the fish of the gospel and all these kind of crazy things. But as I like to say, the real meaning of 153 in that context, that's how many fish they caught. And it was a record. That was a huge number of fish. There's more fish than that net could could had the capacity to hold and not break. So they were getting a lot of help there. But I want you to hold your place in, in John 1 and go to the very back of chapter 20. Not 21, but chapter 20, because you have the purpose statement of this gospel hanging near the back door. And, and most of the biblical books have a purpose statement somewhere in the beginning, middle, or the end of the book. And this is uh, the key to kind of understanding what the human author inspired by the Holy Spirit is trying to do with this thing. So John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John just tells you this is why he wrote the book. Therefore, many other signs, this book is emphasizing certain sign miracles Jesus did that prove his claims to be the unique incarnation of God, the only Savior of the world. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, including in John's presence, which are not written in this book. So he's just telling you, Maxine, straight up, I'm not trying to tell you everything I could tell you about Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it very limited. I've got, this is more of a, a laser beam than a, a, a flashlight uh, beam, you might say. But the stuff I've put in this one, put in this book, uh, these have been written so that you might have more than enough information to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it's not Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Virgin Conception, Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It's Glenda, it's one of his most important titles. It literally means the anointed one. goes back to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. means the Messiah or the Savior. I'm writing this so you may believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, the visible member of the Trinity, the God-man, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That's the purpose of the uh, the book overall, including the purpose of the prologue. Okay, So let's go from that context to the content of the book. Uh, rather than beginning with the virgin conception or the virgin birth, as do some of the other Gospels, John begins before the beginning of the time-space universe you and I can observe. Okay? Go back to chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, could be translated, in the beginning the word already was. He's before the beginning. And he, in fact, is the beginner of the time-space universe. So John doesn't start with a genealogy. Not that he denies the physical genealogy of Jesus, as Matthew and Luke emphasize, but because he's got bigger fish to fry. He's emphasizing the deity of Christ without denying the deity, right? There are no genealogies in John. You just go before the beginning, and you can't really do much better than that. And the book is emphasizing from the get-go that Jesus is the visible member of the Holy Trinity. He's the uh, active agent of creation, the universe, and of recreation or salvation, we'd probably call it. 
Now, the cool thing about this passage, uh, verses 1 through 18, the prologue of the Gospel of John, is it contains some of the deepest truth you will find, Jason, in the New Testament about Jesus, in the whole Bible. These 18 verses, Nancy, contain some of the deepest, most important truth the Word of God written reveals about the living Word of God. And yet, it uses some of the simplest vocabulary and grammar anywhere in the Greek New Testament. I mean, so much so that, just to, I didn't ask James about this, but when you take New Testament Greek in a seminary or Bible college kind of situation, you typically take a year of grammar and syntax and vocabulary. Then you start translating toward the end of that first year. And at Dallas Seminary, when I was there, we did, the first thing we did was translate the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And in fact, we didn't have enough time to do all that, so we just did the prologue, and that was plenty. But the point is, you can diagram those sentences and analyze the Greek very easily, because John is giving you the most sublime truth in the simplest possible form, and yet beyond that simplicity of form, you also have a very intricate structure. You realize all the snowflakes, there's no... All the snowflakes have an interesting crystalline structure when you look at it closely, and there's no two that are alike, Dennis. God makes all the snowflakes unique, much less all of us. And when you look at the structure of this passage, I'm just going to mention this in passage so you can, it's passing so you can appreciate it. It has a special kind of structure that you don't need to notice to understand it, but once you see it and aware of it, it can really help you fine tune what your understanding of it is. And, this kind of structure is something I've talked about before. It's called a chiasm. And let me explain what a chiasm is simply. Chiasm or chiasmus, those are synonymous terms for the same literary device, is a form of inverted parallelism. And when you use this, it just tends to make what you're saying more memorable than it would be otherwise. And many, many coaches have said this and they continue to say it because it really has an impact on people. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Now he could say, if you guys would persevere, it might work out. That's the same thing, but nobody remembers that. When you say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Let's call going A. Let's call tough B. Let's analyze this at a discourse level. When the going A gets tough B, the tough B prime gets going. When the going, notice, is the first and the last of those four components, Tough is the second and third. It's an inverted parallelism. And when you connect the A and the A prime, the going at the beginning and the going at the end, and you connect tough, second, third thing, what do you get? Say an X. You get an X. Actually, you don't get an X. (laughs) You get the letter key, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, kurios, Jesus, Christos. The word Christ isn't his last name, it's a title. And what's the first letter, Steve, in Christos? Say X. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's the letter key. It's the letter key. What looks like an X to us is the CH sound in English. And so when you analyze these chiasms, when you compare, connect the dots, you get an X. You, and we see an X, but the Greek thinkers would see a key. This looks like the letter key. So it's called a chiasm. Now, chiasms get more complicated than just when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And at the, you know, at the risk of freaking you out this early on a Sunday morning, 
when you analyze this passage with the simplest vocabulary and grammar, you have the very first thing, verses 1 and 2, and the very last thing, saying the same thing. And you have the second thing, and the second and the last thing, saying much the same thing. And you work from the margins to a center to emphasize the most important thing, which is right in the middle. How do we access this thing? How do we access this person? Now, that's the way you diagram that when you're writing journal articles. But I think most average people, real people, like to relate to it this way. Yeah. I, I just put it on its side. Now, I know you, you can't read at an angle like that, but that's okay. What you're actually doing when you do a chiasm is you're working toward and away from a center because you're emphasizing the center. Now, why would they do that? When you have a book, they called it a codex when they first invented it in about 100 A.D., you automatically kind of get a feel of a beginning, middle, and an end. But when you have a scroll, which is what they used until 100 A.D., you open it up to its fullness, and you're kind of aware of a symmetry that moves to a center and away from it. I think just that medium tended to make the ancients often think and organize their material toward and away from a center. So what we're going to do today, and I put this in bold so I would remember saying it because I want to say it right, just for fun, just this once, and it's possible I may define fun differently than you do, just this once, let's match up the parallel parts of this structure as we do a brief exposition this morning. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2 and try to tell you what they mean in context. And then we're going to immediately go to verse 18, because those are the points, Scott, that line up. So I'm going to let verse 18 be kind of the most important context for how we read and understand 1 and 2. And we're going to do that all the way through. And that doesn't look, that looks kind of complicated and that looks kind of crazy. But it just kind of looks like this. We're going to look at the word is co-equal with God the Father in the very first Subcomponent, the very end of it. The word in creation, physical and spiritual. The word is divine life, light, and grace. And the word is the title for Jesus. Okay, The word identified by John. Now, what do you think, Jenny? You're our expert on acronyms around here. T-B-J-P. The word identified by John. T-B-J-P. What do you think? Pressure. Let's say John the baptizing Jewish prophet. Okay, Now, we call him John the Baptist, but Dustin, John wasn't a Baptist. Okay, He was a Jew. He was a Jewish prophet who baptized in water, and none of the Jewish prophets baptized in water. That made him stand out, so we're going to use it that way. I would have spelled it that way. We didn't have enough room on the slide. The words incarnation in this world, and then we'll look at the most important part based on the structure right in the middle The Word is the Savior. He's the object of saving faith. So let's look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to drop down to verse 18, because based on the literary structure, those are very, they're twins. They're kind of fraternal twins, we might say. Okay? So let's walk through this. You know, I never forget, I was a little boy, I think I only accepted Christ for about a year or two before this, and we go into the grocery store in Opelika, Florida, where I grew up, Miami, Florida, and went to the grocery store, and there was a shopping cart full of paperback Bibles. It was uh, the Good News Bible. Some of you may remember that translation. It was a paraphrase. And they wanted it to be a form of Scripture anybody could understand. And it was like 25 cents. 
And I asked my mom if she'd buy me that so I could have it. And she bought it for me. I was so happy with that thing. I still have, have it in my office, actually. It's a paperback uh, paraphrase of the New Testament was the version I got. And I thought, man, I've always wanted to read the Gospel of John. I mean, I'm like 11 years old or 10 years old, but I wanted to read the Gospel of John. So I read that thing, and even the paraphrase didn't help. Because I'm reading this thing, I said, now in the beginning was the Word. And I, I was a good Baptist boy. I knew what the Word was. The Word is the Bible, right? So I'm thinking, in the beginning, you've got Bibles floating around in heaven, you know, around God or something. And the Word was with God, okay, he wrote it, so it makes sense. And the Word was God? The Bible is God? I mean, I was getting all these strange messages, you know, because I was misreading it. He's in the beginning with God, and it went on. The term word here is the word logos, we get logic from it, uh, refers to uh, words are representations of other reality. So the word T-R, uh, watch this, the word dog in English refers to your favorite pet. The word, the same word translated in the Chinese or written in English uh, to somebody who understands, a Chinese person who understands English, the word dog, you know what a dog is in, in northern China? It's something you eat. Remember, we ate dog in China. Some of us, you didn't probably eat it, but uh, I, I ate it when we were up there. But here's the crazy thing. In Hebrew, Old Testament, the word dog, that's the way it's pronounced, it's D-A-G. Dog uh, uh, is actually Caleb's name, Okay. Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that uh, said, "Let's they're, they're too big to miss, let's go get them. His name is Dog. Caleb's name is Dog in Hebrew. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, words are representations of other realities. So the word tree refers to those uh, plants, those big, you know what a tree is. Can you picture it? You know, it's like oak tree, pine tree, that kind of a thing. It represents something. Jesus is the visible representation of God because he's the visible member of the Trinity. No man has seen God the Father ever. He's spirit, as Paul says. But you want to see what God looks like? You've got to look at the, the incarnation of God in the person of Christ. In the beginning, the word already was. This is saying the word, a title for Jesus, existed before the beginning. That means he's got to be transcendent, right? And the word was with God. Now, the Greek syntax makes it clear this is saying the word, Jesus, who was before the beginning, was with, proston theon, was with, was fellowshipping with God the Father. He is deity himself. He's before the beginning, but he's not the same person as God the Father. And then it says, and the word was God. And you want to confuse uh, elementary age kids that think concretely? Tell them again, in the beginning was the word. They're going to do what I do. Think about the Bible. And the Bible's God, and the word, and the Bible was with God. What's all that about? But you actually have two different statements. After the first statement, in the beginning, the word already was, which tells you he's very special. He's deity. He was with God, the Father, having fellowship. Sometimes preachers who should know better will say things like, well, you know, God was, was, was lonely, and he needed somebody to love. And so he created us, you know, and God needs us to make sure everything works out. Because if, you know, if we blow it, I mean, the plan of God won't happen. You know, God doesn't need Brad McCoy. He didn't even need Billy Graham, okay? He didn't need us. He wants us. He didn't create out of need. We're not meeting any of God's needs. We're just expressions of his grace. When you understand the Trinity, there's no need for God to create something so he can love. He's already in a perfect love relationship 
with the, the three members of the Trinity. In the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God the Father. They're interacting perfectly. And the Word, title for Jesus, was deity. That's the way you ought to translate that. We're not saying the Word was with God the Father and the Word was God the Father. If you just read that bare translation to a kid or an adult that thinks concretely, you're going to think this is saying Jesus and God the Father are the same person. They're not. In the beginning, the Word already was. The Word, a title for Jesus, as we'll see clearly demonstrated in the rest of this context, was with, was fellowshipping with a distinct person than God the Father, and yet the Word himself was deity. Okay? Now, this is an attempt that goes back to the early 2nd century to depict the Trinity on two dimensions, and it does a whale of a good job, although it's very limited in what it can do. But we're saying God the Son was with the Father and the Holy Spirit too. But he's not trying to tell you everything he can tell you. And the Son himself was God, was deity. What does that mean? It means all of the essence, all of the characteristics of God, the Father, and the Spirit are possessed by Jesus too. And we won't take the time to go through those, although, you know, we have the, uh, the Swedish word live, right? Or two juniors live will let you remember those attributes of God. But we dare to say that the babe in the manger was the God-man Savior. That's the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, that's why Jesus is so special. Drop down to verse 18. Why are we dropping to verse 18? Because the literary structure tells us they line up. No, talking about Jesus being with the Father before the beginning, Jesus being full, fully equal, having the same essence characteristics as God the Father. We're told no, no human being, not even Moses, has seen God the Father at any time. Any time God makes himself visible in any sense, it's Jesus every single time, including in the Old Testament. Those are called Christophanies, where we have Christ appearing in the Old Testament, right? No one has seen God at any time. He's spirit. You can't see him. The only begotten. Monogenes doesn't mean only begotten. means unique, only one of his kind. The unique member of the Trinity. Jesus is the visible member of the Trinity. He's the active agent of salvation. He's the God-man Savior who is. Is that present tense or past tense? Who is? Say present, right? You know, you've got John, one of the closest friends of Jesus, who sees the ministry sees the crucifixion, sees the resurrection, sees the ascension. Now he's living in about 69 AD as he's writing this down under inspiration. And what are the Jewish leaders saying about Jesus? Did they all embrace him? They set his murder up. And then what did they say about it later? What did they say about the resurrection, according to Matthew? The disciples stole the body. You know, this is all a figment of imagination. They think they're winning. But John is saying here in the prologue, He's going to emphasize this again. You can't see God the Father. He's invisible. He's spirit. God has made himself known through the second member of the Trinity. He's the visible member of the Trinity. Activates in salvation. He's the unique member of the Trinity in that sense. And he is right now at the right hand of the Father, right? That's what happens as far as his visible manifestation of his reality is since the ascension is in the bosom of the Father right now. So the bad guys who are saying Jesus was a charlatan or he was a fake or we lied about this, they're just wrong. And then it says, he, Jesus, explains who God is. Muhammad isn't going to, not everything he says is wrong, but he's not the one you look to, okay? Um, 
uh, James, how about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Yeah, the Hindu uh, transcendental meditation teacher for John Lennon, Paul McCartney. They can't explain ultimate reality. Who do you look to, Lendl, to know about ultimate spiritual reality? You look to Jesus Christ. I mean, he's it, okay? To the extent the Old Testament prophets point to him, we can use that in Scripture. To the point the apostles explain that, we use that. To the extent preacher like me, flawed, and finite, can accurately communicate some things about Jesus, that can help us to understand it. But we're looking at Jesus. We're not looking at uh, a denomination or a seminary or a preacher, anything like that. Jesus isn't just a prophet or preacher. He's much more than that. Okay? So that's verses 1 and 2 in verse 18. In the beginning, the word already was. That's the title for Jesus. The word before the beginning was fellowshipping with God the Father, the different people, different persons, I should say. And the word was and is full deity. He was in the beginning with God. Boom. Okay, let's look at the second major unit of this passage. The word and creation, both physical creation and spiritual creation. Look at verse 3. All things in the physical universe, time, space, matter, and energy, came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You think he's trying to cover all his bases there, Kitty? You know, sometimes people complain about preachers repeating ourselves. Dennis, the Bible repeats itself a lot. You know, in the Bible, there are some things hard to understand, but the main things are plain things, Connie, and they get repeated a lot. And he didn't want you to think, for any minute, you've got some wiggle room here. This, this is saying in Scripture that Jesus is the active agent of physical creation. Time, space, matter, energy. Apart from him, nothing has come into being that's come into being. He's the creator. Now that's supernatural, but that's just flat what happened. And also I think it lines up with the data when I actually look at it. Um, look at verse 17. Why are we going to verse 17? It's all good, but this is the, the uh, a fraternal twin in the structure of verse 3. Uh, talking about not physical creation now, but spiritual creation. Jesus is the active agent of physical and spiritual salvation. For the law was given through Moses. What do you know about the law? Was the law given to save anybody? Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being can be justified in his sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin, because at our worst we break our own standards, much less God's, right? Uh, and yet, the law, remember we walked through the Old Testament recently, we got that foundation promise to Abraham, that's the basis of everything in the rest of the Bible, and then on top of that, that superstructure, we've got the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant that's pointing to Christ, it's partial, preliminary, but points to Christ, and Paul calls it spiritual training wheels in Galatians, or it's a, a schoolmaster that was designed to point humanity to Christ. So the law was given through Moses, and it's wholly just and good, but it shows you, uh, Sonia, what do we say about that? The law really isn't a ladder people could use to climb to God. It's what? Mirror that shows you what? Yeah, your own sin, you need a Savior. So, as wonderful as the law is, Old New Testament Christians should not put themselves on the Old Testament law, you know, by uh, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. But grace and truth in its fullness, perfectly consistent with the Old Testament law, were realized through Jesus Christ. The fullness of the plan of salvation, just like the fullness of the plan of creation, goes back to the active agency 
of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds crazy to secular thinkers, but that's just the way it is, and nothing in the scientific data contradicts that, right? Uh, I found this graphic, and I just thought it was so cool I'd show it to you, because this is the only chance I'd get to do that, you know? Uh, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth in its fullness, consistent with the Old Testament law, came through Jesus Christ. So think about this. In the Old Testament, we're told that all human beings are sinful and they die. Now, I know about Elijah and Enoch. Those were rare exceptions, but for 99.999%. Uh, the major promise of the Old Testament is what? God's going to send a Savior. The Old Testament ends as an incomplete document waiting for its fulfillment in the birth in Bethlehem and ultimately the second advent of Christ. So you think from the Old Testament point of view, they're looking for the Savior, and we saw Anna and uh, Simeon in the temple in Luke 2. We saw the uh, the Magi last week. These were Old Testament believers looking to the promised Messiah. We saw the shepherds two weeks ago. These were Old Testament believers looking for the promised Messiah. They were under the Mosaic law, but fullness comes through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving. Doing a lot of living this morning, folks. The Word co-equal with God the Father. The Word in creation, physical and spiritual. He's the active agent of both. Now let's talk about the Word as divine life, light, and grace in verse 4 and 5 and verse 16. Look at verse 4 and 5. In Him, in the Word, the expression of God, the visible member of the Trinity, was life. This is so cool, Dustin. This isn't bios. This is zoe. Bios is biological life. Zoe is spiritual life. Okay, uh, David was born again several years ago in my office. Okay, and we didn't need an obstetrician. I can't say that, but you know, because I enjoyed this story and actually happened shortly after I got my PhD. Debbie and I were checking into a, ho- a hospital, checking into a hotel, <laughs> uh, not a hospital. That was something else. Uh, and, you know, I still kind of like the sound of Dr. McCoy, so I put, I signed up for the reservation, Dr. Brad McCoy, and I said, um, you know, you put your, your license on the desk here, and you say, hi, I'm Brad McCoy. And she said, okay, let me look it up. She goes, oh, you're a doctor. Now, I found out pretty quickly, if you get a PhD, everybody who is happy to meet you because you're a doctor, they think you're a medical doctor, and they want medical advice. That's why they're happy to meet you. Otherwise, they don't care. So I'd already, I knew that drill. So, I wasn't trying to be humble. I was just trying to let her know I don't know anything about medicine. I said, I'm just a PhD, meaning I'm not a medical doctor. And she said, baby, no big deal. She said, don't you worry about that. My favorite doctor of all time was an OBGYN. <laughs> and what she meant by that was, PhD was a medical specialty. I'm, you know, and then she goes, I'm not, I'm not making this up. And I've had seven different kinds, I've had seven different kinds of skin cancer. So I'm an expert on skin cancer. Melanoma. But she goes, so she hasn't stopped yet. She thinks I'm a medical doctor still. I tried to say I wasn't. And she goes, hey, listen, I've got this thing growing on my neck. I'm not making it. Could you look at that and tell me what I should do? And I went, you know, if I were you, I would contact a dermatologist. And she acted like I just gave her a lottery ticket. She okay, would you write that down? You know. Okay, see, dermatologist, you know, and I scribbled my names. I looked like a medical doctor because I can't, you know, I read it. That really happened, man. I love that. That was like worth all that work of writing that dissertation just for that, that one moment, man. 
But uh, yeah, in him was life, not bios, but zoe, spiritual life. You know, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born a second time, not just physically, but spiritually, you need zoe to go to heaven, not just bios. Everybody gets bios, right? In him was life, and the life was the light. Phos is the word for light of men. That means of people, not just males and females also. Uh, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Now, notice we're getting all these titles for Jesus, okay? The first title we're given for Jesus is the Word. Now, we're going to be told in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus here, right? But the Word is a title for Jesus. Uh, the life is a title for Jesus. Spiritual life, not just biological life. The light is a title for Jesus. These are all titles for Jesus. Nobody else gets that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's like the most offensive verse to our postmodern culture. How dare you say that? And I would say, I'm not saying it. I'm just quoting him. And I'm putting my chips on him. Not Richard Dawkins, whoever is the, the shining light of the atheist right now. In him was, was life, uh, not just bias, but spiritual life. And the life, that's a title for him, was the light of men. It's another title. And watch this. Now, John's writing this in 69 A.D., and the bad guys crucified him 30 years before. And they're still thinking they beat, they beat him by killing him. They, they deny the resurrection. And he, John just says, you're wrong. The light, Jesus, shines. That's present, active, indicative. Keeps on shining in the darkness because he's not dead, he's resurrected. And the darkness did not comprehend it. If you have a good study Bible, it might say the word there translated comprehend or understand, katalambano, an original can mean to understand or to overcome. And you might say, how does that work? Well, the root of that word is to grasp something. So when you grasp something with your mind, Nancy, as as petite as she is, is like one of the biggest OU football fans I know, and she totally understands Lincoln Riley's fine points for the OU offense and defense. She can write... X's, X's and O's for you all day long. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but she grasped with the mind the glories of OU football, okay? Some of us don't see that, you know? But uh, she, to grasp with the mind means to comprehend. Or the same word, catalambano, can mean to grasp with your hands, to subdue and overcome. Now, that word can mean either one of those things, and people always want to say, which one is it? And I'm quite certain, and you can ask John this in heaven, I think he knew... For sure, the word could mean either one. I think he meant both at the same time. It's called double entendre. Okay, they're both true. He was crucified, and that's done with it. That's, that was the explanation then and now. It's just these crazy fanatics believe in the resurrection. John's saying, "I saw the resurrected Christ." Uh, the light keeps on shining in the darkness. The darkness of rejection, both religious and secular, did not understand it. Did not overcome it. Those are both true, right? Now, go to the parallel passage here, verse 16. For of his fullness we've all received in grace upon grace. He's saying, we got what he gave us. You didn't take him away from us. He himself says, no one takes my life. I'm, I'm sub- submitting this. I'm doing, I'm submitting to this situation. I could snap my fingers and just start creation over again if I wanted to. But in grace he goes to the cross. Uh, willingly, and uh, because it's the only way. Okay, let's go to the next section. The word is identified by John. Okay, Jenny, remember what that stands for? 
the baptizing Jewish prophet. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give the Baptist free advertising here, okay? I'm just not gonna do that. Um, actually, Harold gave me a pamphlet once. Some guy went door to door downtown and said, why John, why everybody should be a Baptist? Because John the Baptist was a Baptist. But he wasn't a Baptist. He was Jewish, right? And watch this. Verse 6. There came a man sent from God the Father, whose name was John. Ionos is in, in Greek. It means is John the Baptist. And by the way, here's another thing I, I thought about when I got that uh, paraphrase, James. You know, this is the Gospel of John, right? And you start reading it, Grace, and you get to six verses, Dale, in the Gospel of John, and it refers to a guy named John. So the first time I've tried to read and understand this thing, I'm thinking it's got to be the guy the gospel's named after, right? Doesn't that make sense, Jan? Gospel of John, four, six verses into it, we're talking about a guy named John. This John in verse 6 isn't the Apostle John. It's John the Baptist, John the baptizing Jewish prophet. Came a man sent, the, the, the final prophet, the Old Testament, was anticipating to point directly and to be a contemporaneous person with the Messiah. Came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, the life, the word, about Jesus, so that all might believe. Sounds like he's not a Calvinist, but uh, it's just me. Uh, he was not the light. He was in, very impressive. He looked like a latter-day Elijah, very impressive guy. But he came to testify about the light. That's all a good preacher is. Just tell me what the text means and how it relates to my life, and let's focus on the content, not on the talker. All right? That's all good preaching is to me. Let's go to the parallel passage, uh, verse 15. John, oh my goodness. I always wondered about that before I knew about chiasm. Why, do he, why does he mention John in verse 6, 7, and 8, Sue? And then he gets off on talking about more sublime truth. And then he goes back to John in verse 15. Because he's got this inverted parallelism. That's why he's coming back to the parallel section, right? Look at verse 15. John testified about him, the word, the life, the light cried out saying, this is he whom I said, the Messiah is coming after me, he's on the ground, he's greater than I because he pre-existed me. He's the creator in human form. Awesome stuff. Now, this is Christmas according to John. And really, um, verses 14 is the one that really emphasizes that. Look at uh, our next passage, verse 9 through 11, and then it's parallel, verse 14. He, Jesus, was the true light coming into the world and Bethlehem, living a perfect life, dying for our sins, rising again, ascended to heaven, uh, who enlightens everyone who wants him. He was in, and here's the irony of it. He was in the world. The creator was in the creation of transcendence into imminence. And the world had been made through him and the world didn't know him. And Blanche, that's what you were singing about. We didn't know who he was. They didn't know who he was, you know? Uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They didn't know what they were doing, right? Uh, came into the world, generally speaking, not many people responded. Came to the Jews who should have known. They had scripture and prophets. But those who were his own did not receive him. It's amazing. Couldn't make it up. That's what happened. Now go to verse 14, the parallel. It's getting awful hot in here, and we're getting close to the finish, but before I pass out, somebody, John, uh, Ron, crank up the air conditioner a little bit. I know it's December, but it, is it warm in here? It's not? It's not? Okay, well, that's a good sign, because I thought I was generating so much hot air. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, 
I'm working up here, man. Just so you'll know. Yeah, I'm not trying to be funny on that, but it's just true. And you know, if I, if I get warm, I know my wife is very warm because I'm just usually the other way around. Here's the parallel passage. You know, uh, came into the world. He's available to everyone, but most people don't want it, including the Jews who should have been looking for it. We saw the Jewish leaders not want to go six mile trip last week after the Magi came to town. Verse 14. I love this verse. And the Word. Who's the Word? Talking about the Bible here. Talking about Jesus. Okay, in this context. Became flesh, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. One person with two natures, the unique person in the universe, and he dwelt among us. And that word for dwelt is the Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Septuagint for the tabernacle. In the tabernacle lay the temple is where God manifested a visible presence, right? Every time you see a visible presence of God, it's Jesus in some form. He was the guy in the, he was what was in the Holy of Holies, the Haggadosh, Haggadoshim in the tabernacle and the temple. And he's the one in that manger. And there was no halo over that manger. He looked just like another average person. Philippians 2 says that. Isaiah 53 says that. But here's the enormity of this. The word Jesus Christ, nobody else became flesh, took on humanity, even though he's preexistent eternal deity and tabernacled, dwelt among us. And then John says, we, we saw his glory, doxa, glory as of the only begotten, the unique one from the Father, the only visible member of the Trinity, uh, from the Father. Father's the author of the plan. Son is the active agent. Holy Spirit's the activating agent of the plan. Full of grace and truth. We've got a little bit of picture of that through the Old Testament co- content and covenant. We see the fullness in Jesus Christ. Now what's really cool about this is, and James will probably might mention this next week, but when you talk about the transfiguration event where Christ unveils his glory temporarily to Peter, James, and John, and Elijah and Moses show up, uh, you read about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't read about it in John. But he tells you at the end of the book, I didn't tell you everything I could have told you, but he refers to it here, Lendl. He says, we, Peter, James, and John, John, the author of this, we saw his glory. And then we saw his glorious resurrection. So awesome the way this stuff lines up. Boom, let's get to the most important part, because the meat's in the middle, definitely. The Word, Jesus, co-equal with God the Father. Jesus, the Word, is the active agent of physical and spiritual creation. He's divine life, light, and grace like no other. He was identified by the last Old Testament prophet, John the baptizing Jew, uh, and he was uh, imminent, incarnated into this world, even though the vast majority of the world to this day describes it differently, explains it away, waters it down, or just rejects it. And now let's get to the center part of this chiasm, verse 12 and 13. But here's here's the take-home. But even though the world generally will describe him or explain him away, and even the Jewish folks, the vast majority of Jews then and now, don't embrace Yeshua as Messiah, but as many as do receive him, each individual exception, even a little nine-year-old kid in the back row of a Baptist revival in Opelika, Florida. To them, he gave the right to become the beloved, tecton there means beloved children of God, that is to those who believe in his name, who were born not physically but spiritually, not of blood, will of the flesh, will of man, but of God. That's this intersection. That's the payoff. When you look at the structure, it builds to that and away from that, and now we're looking at how we access that. You've got the basis of salvation, the work of Christ. You've got the terms for receiving it, faith in Christ alone. Okay, 
lot of people want to say Jesus did something that allows us to save ourselves. Christ did something, we add our stuff, God adds it all up, and if you have enough points at the end, you, you make it. That's watering down the blood of Christ. That's the worst heresy you can do. They say Jesus did part of it, we have to do the rest of it. You have to dare to believe Jesus paid it all. Somebody should write a hymn <laughs> to that, you know. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, kind of thing. Um, because he does all the work, we call him the Savior. I think the Bible says a few times salvation is of the Lord, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a major theme of the Bible, right? Because he does all the work, right? Hang between heaven and earth. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Uh, he who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteous God in him. That's Second Corinthians 5.21, right? So I, I always preach that. I teach that. But, you know, I'll say, hey, Christ died for, for our sin debt and totally paid it on the cross. When he finishes uh, the atonement, I was just talking to two really bright college guys at lunch Friday about that. He says, it is finished, which is one Greek word in John 19.30, paid in full, tetelestai. He's saying, job is done, you know, mission accomplished. And salvation is something a little child can do, but no theologian can totally understand. It's active, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Jesus to save us, right? That's what salvation is. Uh, many reject, many explain away, many water down, many say nice things about Jesus, might not the ultimate thing, that he is the issue and the issue of eternal life. But to each individual that dares to believe in his name, not believe that his name is Jesus, but believe who he is and what he did. Who is he? God, man, Savior. What did he did? Pay your sin debt in your place and was room temperature for three days and there was literally bodily supernatural resurrection. That's that's saving faith. What do we have to brag about in our salvation? Who gets who gets praised for our salvation? But by grace and merited favor are you saved through faith, which is active receptive trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. Not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should brag about. I'm going to heaven because I'm better than you are. Now realize, most American non-church people think, Christians think we obey the rules better than they do. They just assume it's on, it's on a, a works basis that people are saved. And they think that Grace and Carla obey the rules better than they do. And you know what? Carla and Grace probably do obey the rules better than most people. They're right. But that's not how they're saved. As Paul says several times, if righteousness came through the law from standard of, of merit, Christ died needlessly. If you could save yourself by being good enough, why would God send Jesus on a suicide mission? Not going to happen. Is this an incredible passage or what? We have just scraped the surface, my friends. But let me say this as we close. Here's the happy ending. Angel, I don't know if Dustin told you, but all my lectures at Cameron and all my presentations here have happy endings so that everybody's happy when I end them. Yeah. And some people have to take world religions for three hours once a week. And that's, we're all happy when that one's ends every week, right? But, uh, you're going to hear people talk about the real meaning of Christmas here, including people, theologians like Britney Spears and Lady Gaga. Uh, and they're going to say, you know, the real meaning of Christmas is, uh, it's more blessed to give than receive or take time to be with your family. Or uh, the one I heard recently, go into all the world and smile. <laughs> and after I got off the floor, I said, you know what? 
I, I think people should smile, you know. Uh, one of the things I got for Christmas yesterday, we celebrated Christmas with our boys, was a teeth whitening system. So now that I've got my teeth straight, after all my baseball injuries, uh, they're going to be white soon. And maybe next year I'll get a toupee. Who knows, you know? Uh, and then I'm going to take guitar lessons, and then I can really be a real preacher nowadays, because it'll, it'll be good. Uh, but the Roman Christmas is the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. And trust me, you study church history, people have tried to do everything with those two truths. Jesus God, Jesus man, except believe he's the God-man Savior. Some people want to say he's two persons in one body. Some people want to say he's a little bit deity, a little bit humanity, overlapped a hybrid. Some people want to say, and the first error in the church age, late first century, was Jesus looked to be human, but he wasn't, because anything physical is inherently evil. So he just looked, docetism, he appeared to be human, but he was just God who looked like a human. We're saying he was a baby. He got tired and took naps in the back of ships after a long work day, you know? So I'm becoming more like Jesus all the time, because uh, at 3 o'clock, I can sleep, I don't need to take a power nap, right? And uh, he wasn't just a being who was amazingly godlike. He is the Savior Sinners who trust in him receive the ultimate Christmas gift no matter what day, including December 25th, if you believe in him. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this amazing passage. This is so much incredible truth here um, that it just blows our minds, blows our categories. So please expand our capacity to understand, believe, and apply the implications of this. And if anybody's got reason to be happy this time of year or any time of the year, it's got to be us who at some basic level understand and have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so uh, give us a true spirit of joy because of who Jesus is as we celebrate this Christmas 2017 and help us be alert to opportunities to uh, when it's prudent and effective to share the gospel with our lips, but help us to live it out with our life consistently. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.